Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. We're going to look at the first chapter, the 18th and 24th verses. And this is um, Matthew's infancy narratives. The emphasis in Matthew's Gospel is very different than it is in Luke's. In Luke's Gospel, the, uh, the focus is on the Blessed Mother. The focus is on Mary. In Matthew's Gospel, the focus is on Joseph. And we know that the Gospel begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and it traces as Jesus' genealogy through Joseph. And, uh, and therefore, it is through Joseph that he becomes the son of David, which is kind of fascinating for us. Not to deny that the Virgin herself was a descendant of David, that's a strong tradition. But, but the fact is, is that um, if, in fact, it is only Joseph, then Jesus is the adopted into the line of David, exactly as we are adopted sons of the Lord and adopted into the kingdom of heaven. So that uh, there's, there's uh, room for debate and discussion, understanding and all of this. Um, but there's some interesting insights that we might want to have, even as we reflect upon our own relationship with the Lord, our own relationship with... We, we, we can't, we, we certainly can't see it, the, uh, we, we can't see the term adopted children as being somehow or other um, marginal to, to a full involvement in the legacy and the tradition that brought forth the Savior and to, into the world. And uh, it, it kind of rests also as a model for, um, for adoption within our, within our own society. But what begins here um, is that the gospel begins, this is how Jesus Christ came to be born. His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they came to live together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Okay, so now the idea, the Annunciation has already taken place. The conception of the Lord has already, has already taken place. And, uh, and they, the Matthew wants us to know that while Mary and Joseph are betrothed, that is engaged, and in Hebrew society, a betrothal um, bestowed upon, um, bestowed upon the, the couple all of the obligations of, of married life and all of the privileges um, except, except for the consummation of the marriage. So that it was seen in a way as a pre-marriage and in that pre-marriage, all of the rights and all of the responsibilities and duties are there. Which means that if Mary is with child and Joseph is not the natural father of that child, then the presumption would be from the outside looking in that she had committed adultery. Um, since it would have been adulterous for her to have had her relations with any man except the man that she was betrothed to. So Matthew wants to set this up for us so that we know and we come to understand. Matthew is going to be just as adamant about the virgin birth as Luke is, but he's going to come about it in a different sort of way. Um, he already here has said that she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. 
And now the question becomes, does Joseph know that this was the circumstances of the pregnancy? And, uh, and it lends itself to two different interpretations of Joseph's reaction, whether we think that Matthew is saying Joseph was aware or Joseph was not aware. Her husband, Joseph, being a man of honor and wanting to spare her publicity, decided to divorce her informally. And here's where, here's where the, the, the commentators give us kind of a double kind of possibility of interpretation here. We know that Joseph is a just man. We're already told that he is a just man. And a just man does not just mean a fair man. It means a man who obeys the law. And I, and I think that uh, if he obeys the law, respects the law, then he has the obligation to expose Mary to the full consequences of, of uh, adultery, even though he might care deeply for her, that it is nevertheless his obligation to, to expose her to the public punishments and so forth due to the sin of adultery. So Joseph, therefore, if he is a just man, then, and if he has, in fact, not understood that the child is from the Holy Spirit, then he violates his justice, his own justice. And uh, in violating his own justice, then it brings into question the notion of himself as a just man. The other interpretation is, is that Mary has revealed to him, has told him, that the, the child is a child of God, the child is miraculously conceived, and, and told, her, told him her story, the very story that she seems probably have told to Luke, which gives us the first part of his gospel. And if Joseph therefore believes that, then it could very well be that this idea of divorcing her quietly is basically himself removing himself from a situation that he considers to be far beyond his comprehension and far beyond his competence to deal with. At any rate, whatever the circumstances were, that... Uh, Joseph has decided, whichever course of action this is, Joseph has decided um, to go through with it, to follow through with it. But now comes the very same thing that happened to Mary at the Annunciation. An angel of the Lord comes and, and discusses with her what is to take place. Here, the angel of the Lord also comes, but this time comes to Joseph, and comes to Joseph in a dream. Um, the dream mode, the, 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 the dream motif is very strong in the Old Testament, and it is a normal way in the Old Testament to talk about God's revelation of himself to individuals. And um, we know that Jacob in a dream wrestles with an angel, which means that Jacob in a dream encounters the living God, wrestles with him, and is lame for the rest of his life because of it. But the angel now comes and says, Joseph, son of David. So the angel then reaffirms the genealogy that Matthew's gospel begins with. And he, he acknowledges the fact that Joseph is the son of David because it is in Matthew's gospel that it is through Joseph that Jesus is the son of David and therefore through adoption. So... <clears throat> But he says, the angel then says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because she has conceived what is in her by the Holy Spirit. 
And so once again, the virgin birth is strongly, strongly advocated in Matthew's gospel, exactly as it is in Luke's. It's obviously a very key um, position of the faith in, 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 the, in the first century and that it establishes without cause and without, without argument and without ambiguity that Jesus actually is therefore the Son of God. And, um, and so it affirms not only the virgin birth, but it, affor it affirms the divine, the divine person of, the, of, the, of Jesus as being both God and man. God through the Holy Spirit, man through the Virgin Mary. And so then he says, but she will give birth to a son, and you must name him Jesus, which means that God saves. It's Yeshua. Um, our, we, I know we always thought it unusual in the Latino community that many men were named Jesus, but, uh, but we ourselves know how popular the name Joshua is, which is simply the Hebrew for Jesus. And so, um, because you'll call him God saves, because he is the one who is to save his people from their sins. And this idea of saving the people from their sins, this is the very thing that John affirms in the 20th chapter as being the mission that Jesus came for and also therefore the mission of the apostolic church, the forgiveness of sin, which is not just the personal forgiveness of sin, but the lifting of the consequences of sin from the backs of humanity, whom it oppresses and persecutes. Now, all this took place to fulfill the words spoken by the Lord through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel. And so they, the Matthew wants us to know and to understand, and this is an essential part of the Gospels, know and understand that this is the fulfillment of Isaiah prophecy. That in Isaiah 7:14 we have the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall name him Emmanuel, God with us. Um, and that, and that means that now what is transpiring is not something out of the blue, not something that no one understood, not something that was a new creation somehow or other in the, in the faith of Israel. None of that. That in fact what it is, it is the fulfillment of an Isaiah prophecy. And in this fulfillment of the Isaiah prophecy, what we understand then is, is the Old Testament is coming to its fulfillment. We've already seen this in the story of the visitation in Luke, when John the Baptist leaps with joy in the womb at the coming of the Messiah, that the old covenant is joyful at the coming, at its fulfillment, at its own fulfillment, and of the coming of the new covenant. And so here too now, they want to stress the fact that it is the, uh, the fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus comes to us. A name, they call him Emmanuel, a name which means God is with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord told him to do, and he took his wife into his home. <clears throat> so here now we have the story, but the, the story of the Annunciation is the Annunciation to Joseph by an angel of the Lord, whereas in Luke's Gospel it is the Annunciation to Mary of the conception of the Son. So we have then here in preparation and in the, in the, during the, the fourth Sunday of Advent and in preparation for the feast of the, of the apparition of the Lord, of the, of the coming forth of the Lord, the birth of the Lord. Um, I think that sometimes, you know, we, we, we find ourselves 
kind of uh, ignoring the, the, the reality that the Lord was present upon earth from the time of the Annunciation on, arbitrarily we say, for whatever reason, the 25th of March. Um, and then Mary carries the Lord within her till the 25th of December. So actually, Christmas is not the Feast of the Incarnation. The Feast of the Incarnation is the Annunciation. It is kind of the feast exactly as the Eastern Church does with, uh, with Epiphany. It is, the, it is the feast of the manifestation of the Lord, which means that the Lord is with us in a hidden way throughout those nine months. And that Mary then becomes, in a sense, develops in, into the, the image and the model of the church, for she carries quietly and silently within her the Son of God. And in the proper, in the fullness of time, then she brings him forth into the world for all to see and all to come and know. And we know the story, therefore, of the manifestation to the shepherds, the manifestation to the Magi, and, um, and the revelation through the Magi of, uh, to the power structures of Israel. So it's a, it's a, f it's a fascinating story. And it has so many pieces and so many parts. We break it down into individual pieces and parts just so we can concentrate on. It's the same way with the ascension and the, and the resurrection. We don't, and the, and the Pentecost, not everything, if we take everything at once, it becomes too much. So we take it piece by piece. But we have to someplace in time put all that back together again into a consistent and overarching narrative for us to gain an overall vision of the story of redemption. But here then, in this gospel, we're dealing with a number of things. And one of the things is we find the very dependence of the New Testament narratives on the authenticity of Old Testament narratives. There's, there was a time um, during, the, during the Protestant Reformation, for instance, when the Old Testament fell into disuetude, that uh, in some way, shape, or form, um, it was seen to be kind of, it's gone now, it's all over, um, now this is a whole new era. And in fact, is the, the uh, reformer, so-called reformer of the city of Zurich, Ulrich Zwingli, um, one of his great uh, <clears throat> criticisms of Catholicism was he called us Judaizers, meaning that we had deep, deep anchors in the Old Testament in many, many ways. But when we stop and think, the Old Testament is, is, is a revelation of the triune God also. We know that in the Old Testament there is not an understanding or sense of the Trinity, yet we hear of the Spirit of the Lord, and we hear of it a lot through the imagery of angels, of the Elohim. And, uh, and we, also, we also know that God speaks. There is word in the Old Testament. In fact, as in John's Gospel, Jesus goes so far as to claim for himself um, the presence in the burning bush when he tell when Moses says, Who shall I tell them has sent me? And and the Lord in the burning bush says, Tell them I am sent you. And then in John's gospel we find when the Pharisees are attacking Jesus and challenging him, he proclaims to them also, I am. In other words, he identifies himself as word with the word in the burning bush. So that this is an authentic, the Old Testament is authentic revelation. It is preparatory 
for the coming of the new. We know from the story of the visitation that it is supposed to be a joyful handing over, a joyful fulfillment, a joyful completion. When, when the expectations of the Old Testament are, are in fact realized in the coming of the Christ. Um, this is Christian doctrine and this is Christian belief and thought. Um, Pope Benedict XVI said this not uh, well, so long ago during his pontificate. And immediately, of course, there was a German theologian who accused him of anti-Semitism. In order to believe the Christian message does not mean that we're anti-Semitic. And as a matter of fact, in the Christian mind, the whole idea of anti-Semitism is absurd. Um, it's absurd because it was to the Semites, to the Jews, that God first revealed himself for thousands of years before the coming of Jesus. And it's very much a part and parcel of revelation. And, uh, and, and so for us, therefore, to say, well, you know, that uh, the people who received the first revelation are somehow or other less than the people who received the second revelation, um, I think we have to think about that. We have to wonder about that and say to ourselves, how can that be? Jesus himself says in relationship to the Baptist, who was of the old covenant, who was the last prophet of the old covenant, he said, no man born of woman is greater than John the Baptist. <clears throat> and he's talking about someone who, who is, is totally embedded and totally a part of the old covenant. And yet, he's the greatest man born of woman. Then Jesus goes on to say, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Um, so that basically, in human terms, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. When we come into the realm of, of salvation, it's certainly then when humanity transcends itself. We know that there was a there is a, a long tradition, um, modern tradition, and, and a very strong um, theological investigation by Father Karl Rahner of what he calls the self-transcendence of the human person. And, uh, and, and, and certainly um, the understanding, whatever the value of that position might be, the understanding of that position certainly is that, uh, that um, we have a potential beyond our earthly identity, our earthly self. For us, that potential is, is, may well be implanted within creation, but it is realized in faith in Jesus Christ and realized in, in grace in Jesus Christ and realized in the moments of our salvation um, that, that that transcendence actually is perfected and takes place to where we become the most that it is possible for us to become as creators, as creatures and created persons um, who have been put and given life and, and existence by the living God. I think that, you know, this is, this is something that we, we do have to spend time in our own prayer life reflecting upon. How marvelous is this that the Lord has made us to become more than we are? And I think that that's exactly what this notion is of the salvation to becoming more than we are simply as, as, uh, as creatures of the Lord. And that it is through his grace, his power, his saving life, death, and resurrection that that potentiality is realized in us as we're taken then into eternal life. 
so that without this idea, the passing over, we have two passing overs, you know, prescinding from the, from the Exodus and the Passover in, in, in the Old Testament, we pass over from the old to the new and we pass over from the new to eternity. And in both of those cases, there is a whole new um, potential of realization that takes place within, within the human nature, within the human person. And uh, for in the understanding and in the reception of the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that the God saves, that God is with us, the one who has come for our redemption. And we see the first elements of that redemption, both in the Lucan gospel of the Annunciation, but also in Matthew's gospel of what is starting to be called the Annunciation to Joseph. For it is the other side of the coin that Matthew puts forward. And he puts forward, he puts that forward to us in an interesting sort of way. He puts forward that to us because he's very imbued with the Old Testament. And it is through Joseph, therefore, that he connects Jesus intimately to the Old Testament. And, um, and so we have both the understanding the story from the side of the Virgin and then the story from the side of Joseph. Then there is the issue that goes on. And it says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to, uh, to take Mary into your home as your wife because she has conceived what is in her by the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son, and you name him Jesus. And uh, then the question becomes, is there, is there in this gospel any indication of the perpetual virginity of Mary? Um, the, the ecclesial communities uh, within the Christian tradition, most of them uh, acknowledge the virgin birth, but, but most of them at a particular stage in time um, rejected the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary and did so for a couple of reasons. Um, one of them was that uh, the idea of virginity as a virtue was deeply embedded in the Catholic tradition and it therefore it became, it became uh, the, the seedbed of the monastic life, of the cloistered life and so forth, um, which through through many of the reformers, they just simply saw this as uh, as as a senseless burden. If God gave us sex, we should enjoy it. If God gave us sex, we're supposed to use it. The result of that is that uh, that they rejected the idea of of virginity. And if they rejected the idea of virginity, the cloisters could come back and say, but the mother of God was a virgin, even though she had given some, and they said, no, no, she wasn't, that, it, that every, every man and woman has to be married, every man and woman has to, has to have marital relationships, every man and woman has to, and if they're capable, have a family. So this was a huge social upheaval in the 16th century. And in as a matter of fact, uh, the city councils and so forth did everything in their power to destroy the convents and monastic life. Um, I know, for instance, in the city of Nuremberg, uh, the city council had ordered all cloisters to close, all eligible women eligible for marriage and those to be married. And uh, only one convent resisted. That was the poor Clares of Nuremberg. And even in that, some of the mothers came and, and beat up their young daughters and dragged them out and threw them into carts and took them home and married them off, um, despite the young women's protests. 
So it was, it was a violent upheaval and reaction against a virginity as a virtue. And uh, the result of that is they could not possibly um, advocate the perpetual virginity of Mary um, if they were attacking the idea of virginity as a virtue, because that would make Mary less than virtuous um, if she did not have more children. And of course, they can use the gospel. They say, well, you know, it refers to the brothers of Jesus, fine. Um, but you know, when it starts to name the brothers of Jesus, we find out that, that they're, they're children of, 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 Mary's, uh, of Mary's sisters or, or of Mary's cousins. And, um, and so basically there is sufficient ambiguity that the tradition, Christian tradition, that was from the very beginning, um, that Mary remained a virgin after the birth of the child, that... Uh, that that remains a very viable interpretation of scripture and certainly weighted as it is with tradition. It gets away from this idea that somehow or other um, a human person is totally incomplete if they don't experience physical sexual relationships. And, uh, and that's not to say that a person is a non-sexual person, but sex has, has many different dimensions of completion within the human person. And uh, the, a, any particular manifestation of that is not the whole story by a long shot. And I think that the other argument, too, for the perpetual virginity of Mary is the fact that she was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now think about that. A human person filled with the presence of God. And uh, dare we say, well, that is not enough for her. That is not enough for a human person. If that's not enough for a human person, then what is eternal life? Must we therefore go with the kind of a physical paradise that is envisioned in the teachings of Islam or, or in the, in the uh, vision of the, of, the, of the earth of the Jehovah Witnesses or something? That, that heaven is simply the fulfillment of, of all of our physical needs. Um, if, if being filled with God is not enough for a human person, then why do we believe even? What does that mean and what does that say to us about our faith? If we're living because we are oriented toward eternal life, and then we say, but eternal life is inadequate for me, without the fulfillment of my earthly physical desires and not seeing that there's a higher, a different element. We talked before about the transcendence of the human person. That, that certainly the argument that, that Mary must <clears throat> therefore have had other children <coughs> somehow or other denies the image, the vision, and the revelations concerning eternal life and the whole human understanding, the whole anthropological understanding of ourselves being born into the Holy Spirit, born into Christ, becoming one with God for all eternity. Mary was a virgin perpetually, not because she, not because sex is a bad thing, but because God is a better thing. And I think in our own lives, let us pray that we never lose that sense of the wonder of God among us, God within us, the God who saves. 
Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. So